Let us ask the Lord's blessing here today. Heavenly Father, be gracious to us. May the words of my mouth and all the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, our most gracious and merciful God. Amen. People of God, let us hear God's word from Isaiah chapter 2. The word of Isaiah the son of Amoz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established on top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. This is the word of the Lord. I knew I threw you a curve there. Everyone asks the question, how do we make the world a better place? A world where people beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A world where war and the strife that leads to it is not learned anymore. In fact, if you do a Google search to this question, how do you make the world a better place, you get more than two billion responses. Now I'll confess, I didn't do nearly that many. I read about 30. Well, 30 that interested me anyway. But it's very interesting when you look at this, there, there's, there was a particular site where people were sharing the one simple rule that would fix the world if people actually followed it. And uh, this was uh, on Upworthy, and the response was this. But what if there was one rule that if we all agreed to follow it would make everyone's life better? What would this magical rule be? It's no shock that most of them felt like a variation of the golden rule. It's funny that a lot of folks believe that the world would seriously improve if we could just abide by a simple saying that we learned in kindergarten. Now, I'm going to argue, I read through the 17 top responses, and I'll confess, I thought most of them didn't fit the biblical narrative of the golden rule at all. But it's interesting, all of the responses were of people making a change within themselves, thus solving the problem of mankind within ourselves. Even the idolatry of Islam speaks of no supernatural intervention. The Quran is known to say this, the condition of a people until they change that which is within themselves. God will not do anything. What a lie. There's another place where we saw, and I read this, it says, we have been convinced that as a species, we are incapable of creating good societies. But the idea that humans, by our nature, listen, people of God, to what the current thoughts are, 
But the idea that humans, by our nature, are selfish and greedy, that we have insatiable needs, is a lie. That came off of Open Democracy from their economics editor. By the way, if you're a Marxist, you solve the world's problems through economics. As Christians, we know that we are not righteous and are unable to mediate our own salvation to fix ourselves in this world. God's word instructs us in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, it says this, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. By the way, that right there comes from Psalms 14, Psalms 53, and Ecclesiastes chapter 7. The passage in Romans continues on in verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. That's a quote from Psalm 5. The poison of vipers is on their lips. That's Psalm 140. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That's Psalm 10. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. That's Isaiah 59. And there is no fear of God in their eyes. That is Psalm 36. Now you might ask yourself, why did I tell you about where all those are from? I want you to understand that what you see in Romans, what you see in the scriptures, aren't, in the New Testament, aren't just new concepts. The problem of man's sin and man's inability to resolve it for himself has always been around since the fall of Adam. So here's the question, where do these ideas come from that we can solve it ourselves? Why does the world have so many different idols, so many different solutions to the question of mediating our sins to God? We know that the base at a base level, they are all the same idea. That the idols that I made with my hands or my rational intellect can resolve all my guilt and regret and bring peace to the world. We see so many different causes, and I would call those causes religions, and therapies, rational intellect, as there are different people in the world. Why so many? Why not one unified assault against God? Remember last week in our teaching on the ascension of Jesus that in Psalm 2, the nations attempt to unify in council to break the bonds and cords of the Lord. It is simply futility. This has been going on from the beginning, from Adam to Noah, and even now. Let us consider our, our Old Testament reading in Genesis 11. Now let us hear this together. Now the whole earth was of one language and one speech. This word language, safa, in Hebrew means lip. And it's not just lip like this, but it is in fact, in this case, it is understood to mean a common religious culture. The builders of the Tower of Babel were of one single idolatrous system. If you look at Zephaniah chapter 3, we see in the prophecy regarding the gathering of his people from among the nations, this, chapter 3 of Zephaniah verse 9, For then I will restore all the peoples to a pure language, 
It is this same word, lip, that they all may call on the name of Yahweh to serve him in one accord. With the understanding that they were all, had, that the people of Babel had one single mind of rebellion and idolatry against the Lord. Back to Genesis chapter 2, it says this, or chapter 11, verse 2, it says, And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. It's important to recognize that this is in defiance of God restating the dominion mandate following the flood to Noah and his sons. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They're in rebellion by settling there all together. Verse 3 of Genesis 11 says, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. And listen what they say here. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered. This is religious in nature. They're commanded by God to go out and they are dwelling there, and they are stating, we're, we're fighting against God's direction. These men were attempting to build a mountain that they might, in their own idolatrous ways, be mediator to God. This is an attempt to control how their sin is dealt with. They desired no mediator but themselves to the presence of God. We all must guard ourselves from the sin of attempting to build our own high place and worship God in our own ways and patterns, and not as a repentant people saved by the work of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 2 reminds us, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Back we see in chapter 11 of Genesis with verse 5, But Yahweh came down to the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And Yahweh said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language. Again, one lip. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing they propose to do will be withheld. That is to say, to be fenced or restrained. If they're all together in rebellion, restraint will be done away with. Come, let us go down. God descended. They couldn't reach him. He descended. And there, confused their language. That is, to take their common religious culture and divide it. That they may not understand one another's speech. God tells us in Romans 1, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile, that is, empty, vain, or vaporous in their thoughts, and their, and their foolish hearts were darkened, that is to say, without understanding. You see, right? God is consistent from the beginning. He deals with sin in the same way. It isn't just in the Christian era that God comes down and gives them over to a depraved mind. We see again in Romans 1, it says that they were professing to become wise, they became fools. And so we see that the people of Babel were trying to raise themselves up and be their own mediator. 
What was God's response? Genesis 11.8 says, So Yahweh scattered, that is dispersed and spread abroad, from there over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the lip of all the earth. And from there, Yahweh scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. People of God, he gave the command for them to be scattered, to go over the whole earth. His will is always unfolded. The second thing I want us to think about on this day of Pentecost is this, breath and wind. It is important that we recognize that this word in the scriptures teach us about wind, vital breath, or anger. We see in Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And this Spirit of God here is the same word, breath or wind. We see in Ecclesia, in Genesis chapter 2, And the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Our life comes in no way except by God's mercy. Ecclesiastes 1.14 tells us, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. That is the same word. People are always grasping for God. This is why they want to build their own mountains, have their own worship, be their own mediator. They are grasping to be God. Jeremiah 10.13 tells us, When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. And he caused the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for rain, and he brings the wind out of his treasuries. He brings his spirit. He is blowing. And it brings both life and judgment. Isaiah 57, 13 tells us this. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them all away. The Spirit of God will carry away all the idols. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. This breath gives life and brings judgment. We should now clarify the Feast of Pentecost just for a moment, because this is where we're heading. The Feast of Pentecost is 50 days from Passover, hence the word pente, right? But it is also known as the Feast of Weeks. Exodus chapter 23, verse, 13, or verse 16 tells us, when, giving, when God is giving the instruction about feasts and the feast of the harvest, the first fruits of your labors which you have sown in the field. It is the feast of the first fruits. That's important. Make note of that. We also see it mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, beginning in verse 13, that Solomon is sacrificing, and it says this, according to the daily rite, offering according to the commandment of Moses for the Sabbath, the new moons, and the three appointed yearly feasts, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. This brings clarity to Pentecost, or the First Fruits Feast. And this is important when we think about Jesus' admonition in Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Then he said to them, The harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out 
laborers into his harvest. We're framing this up, coming to Pentecost. We see in Acts chapter 2 where there's the exact opposite of what was happening in Babel because the peoples are reunited. Let us look at Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, that is, in God's plan, it unfolded. And they were all in what? One accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a mighty rushing wind, breath of life and of judgment. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them to be divided tongues. Now this word tongues here is language or dialect. As of fire. Remember, fire in the New Testament is largely associated with judgment. And one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We need to understand that Israel is judged at this point as well as the church being launched. Acts chapter 2 beginning in verse 5 tells us this. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from where? Every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. That is, confused in this way of being poured together, to co-mingle. It isn't just in this, like, they had mental confusion, but they were actually co-mingling. Even in that word, God is bringing his people together because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it then that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Serene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, They are full of new wine. Verse 11 is worth repeating. We hear them, that is, the disciples speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. These works of God are the message of reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. It is important to note that outside a few places in Daniel, that the word of God is exclusively in Hebrew up to this point. Now, by the work of the Spirit, the language of salvation is not one, but many. God is beginning to fulfill His promise to reconcile the nations. This also signals God's judgment to unfaithful Israel. Remember that Israel's sin in selling in the temple was setting it up in the courtyard of the Gentiles and thus excommunicating the world from worship of Yahweh. Now in all these things, we see what? When all this is going on, of course... There are mockers saying, oh, these guys are just drunk. Consider Psalm 35, 16, 
with ungodly markers at feasts, they are gnashed at me with their teeth. Think, think of this. In Psalm 35, verse 16, it's telling us already, with ungodly mockers at feasts, they gnashed at me with their teeth. Those in rebellion to God want to simply dismiss God and His Word so that they distract from the evidence and they simply attack the speaker. C.S. Lewis calls that vulvarism, by the way. We see that every day in our culture. We shouldn't be surprised. They do it to the Almighty. They will do it to us. We see, though, that Peter responds with a sermon, and he says this in verse 14 of chapter 2. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Okay, you can imagine this, you know, because if you've ever talked to me, I talk in one way, but if I read the Bible, you know, I kind of go a little more intense. And then when I preach, it kind of gets going. So Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour. And then he has three sections to his sermon. The first one is from Joel chapter 2, and it says this, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And listen carefully, I'll put emphasis on a few things. Beginning of verse 17, And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on what? All flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And all my men servants and all my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and the signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. Therefore, the great and awesome day of Yahweh, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In this passage, there are three basic points. First of all, that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Second of all, that there is a day of judgment. When you hear the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahweh, that is a judgment day. And of course, salvation to Yahweh in Christ Jesus. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, Peter goes on and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know him. So he delivered him into your midst, and that God used him in this way. Being delivered and determined by purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put him to death. Now this was God's ordained plan unfolding before them. And of course it says this in verse 24, Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he could be held by it. And then he goes on and quotes this. It says this, for David says concerning him, and this is Psalm 16. Psalm 16, beginning of verse 4, says this. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. 
Now, we also see that in Leviticus 23, that at the Pentecost and, the, and, and first fruits, that there is a drink offering. And drink offerings God will not take. And they will be, they will, um, be sorrowful because they follow another God. Here we see Psalm 16 quoted directly as this way, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Again, Peter goes on and says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning, that is, David did in Psalm 16, concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, this Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out this, which you now see and hear. So here we see this, he, that Peter makes the point out of Psalm 16, that Christ is on David's throne that he saw no corruption, that is to say he was resurrected. And he certainly points to the fact that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God. Finally, we see that he quotes Psalm 110 by saying this. This is Peter quoting. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 verse 4 says the Lord is sworn and I will not relent you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek and the reason I bring this up remember that every time you read and you see a, a, a little piece cut out of, of a quote of the Old Testament he wants you the writer the Spirit of God wants you to look at that whole passage and so we see not only is Christ ascended but he is the mediator he is the priest forever he is our only mediator. Again, Peter goes on in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, saying this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, now listen to this, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call. <coughs> Excuse me. In this passage, again, we see three points. One, that they should repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. Two, the Holy Spirit will be given to those who repent. And three, this promise is to the children in future generations. All of this teaches us that God is the one who adds. 
We see in verse 40 of Acts chapter 2, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then all those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. This passage right here tells us that 3,000 souls were added. Here we see the beginning of the promise from John chapter 14. I don't know if you were listening, because you know every week that these, these readings that we do in the lectionary, they're all connected, and you say, how is this connected? Well, here's our gospel connection right here. John chapter 14 says this, this is Jesus speaking, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, that is making disciples, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. The context of Jesus' statement is for the nations to be reconciled to God. The complete fulfillment of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, for the earth will be filled with with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. People of God, Jesus called his first disciples this way. Matthew 4, 19 says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Remember that the Gentile nations were considered the sea and the fish in the sea. Every one of us is called to the harvest. Today, this day of the Feast of Pentecost, the feast of the first fruits, we are called to. Remember Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what? Teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This charge is given by Jesus in full knowledge that all authority in heaven and earth are His. This means, according to Joel chapter 2, that all men and women, young and old, are part of God's discipling the nations. Children, look up here. Look up here now. You might say, I don't know what part I play. Do you have little brothers and sisters? Do you have friends here in the church? Right. You are called to teach them what God commands. You are called to teach them God's word, all of you, no matter your age. All of us are called to make disciples. We are to make disciples in our realms of influence. Let us consider walking in obedience to this call. Let us pray. We thank you, our Father, for your word and for the blessing of your word, for the joy of your covenant and the provisions of your covenant. O Lord, our God, how rich you are unto us and how poorly we lay hold of your promises. Give us grace to trust your word and to act on your word and to grow strong in your word and in your spirit. In your Son's holy name, Jesus. Amen.